the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We have been investigating the faith-centered foundation of the American resistance as found inside the pages of this new book, By the Hand of Providence. By the way, for you homeschooling parents out there in particular, I mean, the book is great for anybody, but homeschooling parents... You're looking for a great book that can be a wonderful teaching tool. Uh, You're going to want to go out and pick up a copy of this. Howard is the publisher available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Those one or two still exist, am I right? I'm just checking. And, of course, through Amazon.com. Its author is with us tonight, Rod Gregg. Rod is the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. By the way, a number of phenomenal books that he has penned down through the years, over 16 of them now all told, on topics of the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, Civil War, on and on the list goes. So check out anything uh, written by Rod. Again, G-R-A-G-G, if you're going to Google his last name. Rod, it's curious. We talk about the notion oftentimes that that some will report uh, a number of the Founding Fathers as having been deists. And I find it curious because if we look at the actions of these men and the great risk that they took, the personal sacrifice, it would seem to me that it would take an individual of greater character um, and and, and a sense of, of higher calling than just somebody who casually acknowledged the existence of deity out there. It seems to me that most of the actions of these men in the founding days of this nation were people that were willing to sacrifice for a greater good because they knew the God that they served. Well, that's exactly right. You have to remember when we talk about uh, the founding fathers, the leaders of the American people in the colonial era at the time of the American Revolution, that um, they reflected also the worldview of the American people, or they wouldn't have been holding office. And the worldview of the American people, without question at that time, was a faith-based. It was the Judeo-Christian worldview. And it's no accident that the Declaration of Independence uh, begins with what it calls a uh, self-evident truth that all men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, namely life, liberty, and, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, the Declaration of Independence had to be acceptable to the American people who were going to live with it and in many cases going to die for it. And the signers knew that. And they knew they had to have biblical justification for something as big as an independence movement or a revolution. And so that's why the Declaration of Independence is laced with the language of faith. Half of it makes the case against King George III, because Americans came to to view him in great numbers, as did these crafters of the Declaration, as uh, a leader uh, who was unfit to be a ruler of free people because they had come to view him as a tyrant who wanted and intended to usurp the higher law of God and replace it with the law of man. And Americans, uh, being biblically literate, were very conscious of the whole biblical doctrine of submission to authority. And so they were reluctant revolutionaries. And not until, uh, until the great numbers of them came to believe that uh, he was attempting to uh, usurp or take 
authority over the higher law of God did they move into the ranks of uh, revolutionaries. And uh, they then came to view him and, and Parliament to a lesser degree as tyrants who were, uh, who were seeking to repress these inalienable or God-given rights, and they believed they had a biblical and moral duty to resist that. Now, as far as uh, the leaders and those who are deists, that really is something that has been uh, greatly exaggerated uh, in our day, and it really probably reflects more about uh, where American culture is today than it does the historical evidence of that. Time. Well, to be sure, I mean, the attempt, I think, too, to uh, to take God and faith out of the equation, to kind of neutralize America's stand historically on the position of faith uh, and and kind of eradicate our faith-based roots. I mean, let's face it, if if you can eliminate that at the foundation, it's much easier then to move forward in uh, not only creating a religion-neutral America, but in some corners even a religious-hostile America. Well, you know, the great unreported story of our day, uh, of the last uh, 50 years, is the shift in the national consensus or the shift in the worldview of America's leadership from a historic, traditional uh, Judeo-Christian worldview that holds that God is the authority over all things and God should be the central focus of all things, to a man-centered, secular, or humanistic worldview that says that man, not God, is the authority over all things, and that man, not God, should be the center of all focus. Now, that's a seismic shift, and, uh, and you know, why it's uh, having a trickle-down effect in the, in the American population. You can see uh, that the leadership in America, in virtually all fields, has really shifted in that direction, in, in the field of uh, uh, business, uh, law, government, uh, entertainment, uh, popular media, the culture, popular culture, the, the media, the news media, uh, movies, television, um, health care. It's shifted from this God-centered worldview to a man-centered worldview. And then when you have something like that happens, it means that those who are uh, responsible for conveying information have uh, are uncomfortable with things of faith, particularly of biblical faith. They are... Um, uh, they don't understand it in some cases. Uh, they're uncomfortable with it. Sometimes they really resist it or even hostile to it. And so for those reasons, I think that the uh, the fundamental foundation of America's origins as a nation, which was faith-based, and that faith was the Judeo-Christian worldview, has um, has really uh, almost been, uh, it's been neglected. It's in uh, its to a point that most Americans today, or at least many Americans today, don't know the story. Yeah, and, and sadly enough, and of course the irony is we see the manner in which this is demonstrated, the results of which are demonstrated in society and the world around us every single day. I mean, look at the disintegration of what's going on in our country morally and economically. Uh, there's proof positive, and even more so than what ought to be a firmer drive to return back to the understanding of our faith-based roots, um, the, the, the acceptance of the reality that colonial America was built on a foundation of biblical faith, and that any time you waver from it, you are going to be open for some pretty scary times, which we find ourselves in these days. By the hand of providence, how faith shaped the American Revolution, and hopefully will be the guide to the next one. That's my 
subtitle, my sub-subtitle. Uh, Rod Gregg, its author, our guest on this segment of Lifeline. Again, a number of great resources that Rod has penned down through the years for those interested in uh, a real legitimate view of the faith influence on the founding of our nation. Then, too, again, for parents out there, the homeschoolers, if you're looking for great teaching uh, content, then, again, Google his name, Rod Gregg. You can find lots of great resources, too, all of which available on the web and through Amazon.com by the hand of Providence. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It reads like a laundry list that could have been created by the devil himself. Terrorist attacks, mass shooting attacks on campuses, political strife, racism, economic instability, moral decline, church attendance decline, certainly true here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it has to make you pause and wonder as we take account of what's going on not only on the, the stage um, morally, spiritually, politically across the globe, but certainly here at home, exactly what's going on. Where is the church? Where should we as Christians be in addressing all of this? Because we know ultimately the insights and the key to not only what's wrong, but what the solution is, is ultimately found in Scripture. A very special conference coming to the San Francisco Bay Area this weekend. We'll give you more details on that. But uh, meanwhile, I'd like to invite into our conversation tonight Pastor Andrew Chavaria. He is pastor at Elkhart Church of Christ, a U.S. Army veteran, co-founder of Liberty Cannon Media Group, the executive director of the Truth and Liberty Foundation, speaks all across the country on the topic of uh, culture, God, government, and where our nation is today, where it's headed spiritually, and most importantly, where is the church we need to be? And Andrew, great to have you on the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, We appreciate the opportunity. Boy, you know, kind of uh, taking the temperature, so to speak, morally and spiritually of where America is at today, it, it would seem that not only are we in trouble, but many would wonder, where does the church stand in all of this? I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that the mainstream church in America seemed to be supercharged politically. That certainly was true in the 1980s. We were on the cutting edge of, of addressing many moral and spiritual issues, uh, both from the pulpit as well as uh, from a political standpoint. But it seems as if in, in recent years there's kind of been an atrophying of not only the church's um, influence in the governance of our nation, but but even in terms of just our our overall influence in, in the day-to-day uh, life in America. Why is that? You know, I, I think it boils down to, to uh, the simple aspect of turnover. Uh, when you think about, and what I mean by that is we've lost some of the wise and old leadership that we had in the 80s, and we've now turned to individuals that grew up in the 60s and the 70s, those that grew up during the sexual revolution, and uh, those that grew up in a day and age where, uh, quite frankly, uh, the theory of evolution and all of these things during the space race kind of rude the day in the classroom. And um, quite simply, I think Abraham Lincoln put it best. He said the philosophy of the classroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next. And uh, we now see what happens when you remove God. I mean, when you start about 1965, uh, 1965, we start removing God from the classroom. 
we start uh, we start uh, going going progressively through the years. We remove the Bible from classrooms. We remove prayer from classrooms. Um, then we start getting into the 70s, and now abortion becomes the norm with Roe v. Wade. Uh, then you get into the 90s, homosexuality uh, gets on the platform, and uh, now you get into the 2000s, and it's it's the law of the land. Well, how did all of this happen? Well, it happens because people that grew up already sensitizing themselves to this aspect of life kind of just just stay back and and you know like i said i mean abraham lincoln said it best this is now the philosophy of our government and we now live in a place and time where um i think and this is just my personal philosophy it's one of the reasons that i travel the country talking about this stuff um i think that it's also weighed heavy on our pulpits our pulpits aren't the same anymore they're so watered down and uh, preaching a, a, you know, they're basically giving people a stick of cotton candy when they walk through the door, and there's no truth being preached anymore. So really, in, in a large sense, then, this is sort of the product of erosion. I mean, the, the old saying that yeah. the drip becomes the trickle that turns into the stream that becomes the river, and before you know it, it's cut the Grand Canyon. And in some respects, while we can't point to any singular event that um, is at the center of this. It's many of the events. It, it, it's, yeah. uh, you know, kicking God out of the classroom, uh, you know, Dare we put up the Ten Commandments to encourage students to do things like, I don't know, not steal, not kill, not lie, obey their parents, things of that sort. And so all of a sudden, then, you have a combination of what's taking place not only at the institutional level within public education, certainly within higher education, the body politic, then we add to that. I think you're right, some some levels of frustration in the pulpit in America today that, and certainly this is not meant to be a, a blanket accusation, Pastor, but there are some pastors, I think, that would conclude that, you know, if I get up there and I start preaching sin, salvation, sanctification, start really talking about the tough, serious stuff that we see in Scripture, there'll be nobody there on Sunday morning, and, you know, we've got to pay an electric light bill, and I have a salary that has to be paid, and, you know, we need to put new carpeting in the church, so I'm going to have to go a little bit easier on all of this, and as a result, we end up watering down the effectiveness of the gospel to the point where it has no effect. Right. And, and to me, when when that happens, and, and I mean, it, it's textbook. You see churches like this popping up everywhere, um, you know, multi-million dollar buildings. They have the whole, you know, the whole band, the lights, the smoke, everything like that, uh, to draw people to come in and do those things. And the sermon is just so fluffy that you just really don't get anything out of it. But I, I think what that is a product of is that's a product of Christians who have lost their identity. You know, when we when we start, and here's what I mean by that. So many people think that you go to church. And here's the thing, this is coming from a guy that stands up almost every single Sunday behind a pulpit somewhere. If not my home church, I'm somewhere preaching and teaching the gospel. So so just, you know, stick with me when I say it, because I'm kind of talking to myself. But you don't come to church. You go to worship God. The Bible actually teaches Christians that we are the church. We're the ones that are called out, and when we get that in our mind, when we start realizing that that is our identity, we are the church, and we stop going to church, and we start going to worship God, it doesn't matter what the pastor, the preacher, the evangelist, the reverend, the minister, I don't care what you call it, it doesn't matter what he says. If it's true, you're there to worship God, and you're going to accept it. So then the real distinction here is the difference between going to church and being the church. Yep. And that's why we are where we are today. And the, the catalyst that, that this has happened, the reason that this has happened, is because of the pulpit. Um, you know, Charles Finney is probably one of my favorite characters during the American Revolution. He was, a, he was a cleric during the American Revolution. 
And he actually says, I mean, and I'm just going to kind of quote this pretty quick, but he says, Brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours in a great degree. Mm. Listen to what he says next, though. He says, if there's, if there's a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. He says, if the press, if the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church grows degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. He goes on and he says, if the world loses interest in religion, that's key right now. That's, you, you talked about in the introduction that so many people, even in the Bay Area, to a low attendance uh, in churches. If people lose interest in religion, he says the pulpit's responsible for it. But I want you to see what happens next, because this is what we're talking about, the climate of where we are as a nation right now. He says if Satan rules in the halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundation of our government is ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. Then he concludes, he says, let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay to heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility in respect to the morals of this nation. The reason that Charles Finney could speak so boldly that way is because when we declared our independence, when we declared our independence, the king did not attribute George Washington. He did not attribute the Continental Army. He did not attribute the militia and the Minutemen. The, per, the, the people that they attributed American independence to, that our enemy attributed American independence to, was a group that he called the Black Robe Regiment. It was the pastors and the preachers of the day. He said it's because they're preaching truth and they're preaching liberty in Christ and they're preaching what we don't want them to preach, and that's where America spurned its freedom from. The pulpit was responsible for American freedom. Well, ironically enough, uh, you know, e even a, a stranger to our land, a visitor, uh, de Tocqueville, made the exact same observation in terms of the impact and importance of what takes place at the pulpit. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we have to recognize, and when we talk about things such as a moral code, that the Bible is the standard setter, but it is the church that is the standard bearer. And if we're not willing to bear the standard that Scripture sets for us and make that proclamation from the pulpit and live it out in the pews, uh, then I think the observations of, of, of Finney, as, as uncomfortable as they may be, are perhaps sadly bang on. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. Our special guest in this segment of the program is Pastor Andrew Chavarria as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One of the issues here perhaps at hand is we're sort of um, doing some quarterbacking and analysis of what's happened in the, the moral and spiritual decline in America in the last generation, maybe going on two generations now. One of, I think, the issues uh, that is contributory to all of this uh, is the perception, real or otherwise, that there is a tremendous amount of disunity within the body of Christ. Now, let me hasten to add, some people say, well, you know, that's the problem with doctrine. Doctrine divides. Well, doctrine should divide. Uh, there is a reason why Christ even himself talked about separating the wheat from the chaff. So good, sound doctrine is critically important. That's not the kind of disunity I'm talking about. It's the sense of 
everybody kind of their own corner doing their own thing, um, not not giving much concern to a sense of, of cooperation with one mind, one heart, one spirit, uh, one goal of what Christ has called us to do. Uh, to love our God, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, and, of course, to go about uh, the Great Commission and sharing the gospel in all the world. I think the effectiveness of that really is compromised when there is a tremendous sense of disunity about the body in many respects just because we're too busy doing our own thing or we feel uh, intimidated because somebody may be a little bit more successful in one arena or another than we are. And so, you know, rather than working together, we shy away from it because we feel a a bit intimidated. Uh, What about that perspective, uh, Pastor Chavarria? Is this issue of, of a lack of unity contributory to this problem? You know, I, I think it is. I really think it is. I think the modern American church uh, today is so disjointed that that's why we can't find a foothold um, in making America what Ronald Reagan called that shining city on a hill. Um, you know, and we're, we're so disjointed to the part. There is, you're right, sound doctrine is needed. I mean, you know, one of the ways that I break it down for, and this kind of makes it real for people, is the Bible took about approximately 1,600 years to write. It was 40 different authors, 300 years between the two Testaments where God didn't reveal himself to anyone. Then you have those 40 different guys that you have to talk about that didn't ever cross paths, but the central message is Jesus. And God took a lot of time to preserve all of that for us. And uh, when you think about it that way— you know, it's really easy to say, you know, God said what he meant, and he meant what he said. And one of the things that God says in the Word, in the book of 1 Corinthians, is uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, let there be no divisions among you. You know, the, the, I'm a part of a group, uh, it's called the Radicals, and uh, we all have different, quote-unquote, denominational backgrounds. Everybody has a different denominational background. Uh, but we all agreed, and everybody's a Christian leader or a pastor or a preacher somewhere, but we started this group together. We meet every Tuesday night uh, on, a, on a video platform, and we all started meeting together, and, and among us there's millions of people that follow us on social media and, and, uh, and come to our churches and hear us preach. We all agreed that it was time in America to break down the walls of denominationalism and to start being Christians. That's it. The Bible doesn't, you know, it's funny, the Bible doesn't mention the word, and I know this might step on some people's toes, but if you want to hear and understand more about what I'm going to say, we'll talk about the event that I'm talking about later. But the Bible never says Catholic. The Bible never says Pentecostal. The Bible never says Baptist. The Bible never says Methodist. The Bible calls those that follow after Jesus Christians. And when we start following Jesus and we start deciding to be Christians— Man, that's unity. That's oneness. We have the doctrine. The doctrine is the Word of God. That's the Bible. We have that. And if we can stick to that and we just call ourselves Christians, we will turn, not not the nation, we'll turn the world upside down. Of course, one of the other challenges I think that's contributory that goes hand in hand with that, and not only that sense of, of competition as opposed to cooperation, but also the fact that sometimes there's so much of an emphasis on on doing as opposed to being, and I think that goes to the heart of another big issue, and that is just a, a lack of really understanding what true discipleship <laughs> really 
looks like. People think I show up to church on Sunday morning, drop a couple of bucks in the offering plate. Uh, you know, whenever there's a bake sale, I always be sure to contribute, and they think that therefore qualifies them uh, as a quote-unquote Christian. But they've never been right. through a discipleship process. They don't know how to pray. They don't know how to read the Word. They've never shared their faith with another person. Right. Right. We just basically convert people, and then we throw them to the wolves and expect them to be mature Christians, and it's just never going to work. Yeah, when it doesn't work out, then we wonder why. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's never worked out that way. And that's what we do, honestly, and that's what we're doing to our young people today. And if you look, um, we're losing probably about 70%, 60 to 70% of our youth groups leave the church and don't come back by the time they hit college age we're losing them to sec we're losing them to secular progressivism mm. and uh and, and that that's a big that's a staggering number 60 to 70 percent in the churches of christ it's higher than that it's 75 to 80 percent um but i you know like i said i preach for I'll, I'll preach at any church they want me to come and speak at uh but but here's the thing here's the thing with that and it, it's it's very simple it's very simple because I, I mentioned the word identity. I'm a, I'm a big talker when it comes to identity, and um, one of the things that people like to pawn off now, and you've probably heard it said, um, people probably said it. I know I've said it. We tell people all the time, "Hey, I'm just I'm, I'm a sinner just like you," and and that's true to a degree. But I'm not a sinner anymore. I'm saved, and and the reason that we tell people I'm a sinner just like you is because of the next phrase that we say after that. We tell people, because, you know, look, man, all you have to do is follow Jesus. That's it. All you have to do is follow Jesus. But Paul, you know, going back to the book of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul says, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, we, and Jesus, in the Great Commission, in Matthew 28 and Mark 16, he tells us to go and make disciples. You know, so we have a responsibility as Christians to be an example and to disciple, teach them in the ways in which to follow after Jesus, and we don't want to do that anymore, so we just tell people, hey, I'm a sinner just like you, all you have to do is follow Jesus, because that takes the whole, don't don't follow me, don't, but here's the thing, me as a Christian, as a church leader, I want people to follow me, I want people behind me, because that means that there's somebody behind me to catch me when I fall, that means that there's somebody behind me to lift me up when I'm down, you know, so it's okay to teach somebody, and, and we don't want to be vulnerable, but you have to be vulnerable when it comes to following Jesus, because it's an ultimate act of submission. Well, moreover, that whole notion of iron sharpening iron, that seems yeah. to be a component that's sort of missing. And I think that's also been uh, part of the, the, the fallout of the so-called megachurch movement, and that is that it becomes so impersonal, so disconnected, that there's not that that human touch, that intimacy, that iron sharpening iron that Scripture talks of that is necessary to take place for, I think, true discipleship to form. Now, that said, let's talk about um, this um, spiritual renewal weekend. Give us details, if you would, Andrew. Yeah, normally when I I go and speak somewhere, it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday— and uh, one of the things that I, that I want to do over the, over three days, I'm going to be I'm going to do six lessons in three days um, on being one. So it doesn't matter what your faith background is. You don't have to be a member of the Church of Christ to come to this event. If you if you have if you're going to a community church, if you're going to it doesn't matter what kind of church you're going to. We want you to come to this event because here's the thing is um, and here's what I'm going to be focusing on in Ephesians chapter two, beginning at verse twelve. The, the, the writer says the word, he uses the first word, the word is remember. So this is something for all of us that we all have to remember, that you one time were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, 
and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. We've all been there. We've all not had this hope. Well, you know what God did give us? God did give us hope. In verse 19 of that same chapter, he says, So then now you're no longer strangers and aliens, but now you're a fellow citizen with the saints and are in God's household. If you and I, and it doesn't matter where we came from, it doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter how much money we make, what we wear, how much clothes, you know, what we drive, none of that's going to matter. If you are willing to follow Jesus and make Jesus your identity, you're not going to be a stranger anymore, and you're going to be a citizen of God's household. And what we want to talk about over these three days is renew our spirits to be one household, this sense of, of the, the, the sense of cooperation, the sense of working together, the, the sense of building each other up, because only when we start to do that will we start building our nation back up. Andrew, if folks want to get more information about this, uh, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, AndrewShavaria.com. It's, uh, it's a long last name. I know C-H-A-Z-A-R-R-I-L-L-A. Andrew, before that, AndrewShavaria.com. Um, or find me on Twitter. There's a link straight to my, my website on Twitter. It's at Church Patriot. It's really easy. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll be able to find my Facebook, my website, and all the times and the dates and everything are listed there. And, of course, you know, even if you just Google it, you know, uh, <laughs> bowing to the difficulty of your last name, I yeah. found if you just Google Andrew and just get into Shava, R-I-L, yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll find him that way, too. Or, again, the yeah. Twitter at, at Church Patriot. Well, Andrew, we appreciate the time and the insights and encourage listeners, hey, this is a good way to get a deeper understanding about what Christ wants for the church when he prayed that we would all be one. What does not only that that look like, but what does it mean in terms of being able to increase the effectiveness and the impact of the church on the world around us? As I said earlier, while the Bible is the standard setter, the church is the standard bearer. Our thanks to Pastor Andrew Chavarria for being with us tonight on this segment of Life. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There is a song that was written back in the 1940s. I remember who the uh, composer was. Uh, that, that essentially talks about everything suddenly has been switched, meaning night is day and day is night and, and good is bad and bad is good. And that seems to be where we find ourselves today. Ironically enough, traditionally from the historic Judeo-Christian perspective from the Bible and the Torah, uh, we define sin. We knew what sin was. Well, yesterday's old sin is now today's new norm. We have completely, to many levels, abandoned the sense of a law of nature or certainly of nature's God, find ourselves embracing this entitlement to modern welfare state, and this is the trouble that we have now found ourselves in. The big question, of course, remains in a postmodern or post-Christian environment in which we live, how do we address what I'll simply call spiritual impoverishment and come back to the sense of not only acknowledging the authority that of truth, but that truth even exists? This is part of the fascinating um, study inside the pages of this new book called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. Its author is with us today, 
Dr. R.R. Reno. And, Doctor, what about that? I mean, to begin with, there's this argument. We used to have to, uh, from a Christian perspective, uh, share our faith in Jesus Christ. And now we find ourselves arguing whether or not God even exists. So how do we go about not only getting people around to acknowledging the authority of truth, but who that truth is, what the source of that truth is? I mean, certainly the first thing is to, we've got to be very sure we don't internalize a kind of attitude of self-censorship. You know, political correctness is a very powerful force that's, you know, running through our society, and there's always that danger of internalizing it and just kind of withdrawing or withholding. Uh, and so we, you know, you got to speak the truth in love. You know, you have to you have to be winsome, charitable, and always recognizing the speck in your own eye, I mean, the beam in your own eye, eye. When we talk about the speck in another's eye, so so, but but still, we got to make sure. You know, if the the uh, uh, in the Muslim world, you know, the the non-Muslims are called dhimmis, and Scholars have talked about an attitude of dimitude, which is to internalize second-class citizenship. Uh, and I and I worry that that Christians in America today are going to internalize that kind of well, you know, second-class. I, I shouldn't I shouldn't talk about that to my coworkers or people in the neighborhood and so on. Because um, in my experience, you know. There's a lot of dissatisfaction, and we've talked in this hour about how much dissatisfaction there is in our country. And, and you know, I, I've, I, I've taken, one of the things you're not supposed to talk about politics, you know. You know? Right. And ever since the rise of Trump, you know, I, I have, you know, because I'm, I'm a journalist, and, a, you know, I try to think about what's going on in our society. So I started asking people, you know, ordinary people, people, you know, guys who pull the espresso shots and, you know, uh, here in New York, we only ride around taxis, taxi drivers, and and all that sort of thing. And I ask people about their political views. Are you going to vote for Trump? Who are you voting for? And um, people are tentative at first. You know, a lot at stake. These are, you know, this is about the future of our country. And But they really appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation about something that matters. Uh, how much more do you ask people about uh, questions of faith. What do, you, what do you believe in? And, you know, do you think there's life after death? And you know, do you believe in uh, that that God exists? And you'd be surprised the conversations you have with people and how appreciative how appreciative they are. We all suffer in this regime of political correctness. Uh, a lot of people suffer a lot more than we realize. It's not just us religious believers who suffer, but folks who are. You know, folks who are maybe not not so sure where they stand, but they want to be able to talk and think, and they don't like being policed all the time. So I I think that's the first step. Getting the conversation started, then critically important, acknowledging the fact that there's no such thing as a values vacuum, and we've we've often thought, well, if we can only be neutral about such matters, so that we don't run the risk of offending somebody else. Um, we, we don't want to take our belief system, you know, any further than the tip of our nose. And yet this notion that somehow we can live together in peace and harmony in a values vacuum, which seems to be the direction in which we've headed, is, is completely false, is not? Well, well we, we're, what we're seeing, 
is that the supposed neutral secularism is in fact an ideology that compels us all to conform. Um, you know, uh, every society has norms, social censure, uh, but I, I just feel like when I was growing up longer ago than I would like to admit, uh, there, there was more room to move. Um, there was more elbow room. And now in a society that's supposed to be, you know, diverse and open, there just seems to be a lot more penetrating, you know, uh, control over even people's thoughts. Um, and I, I think that's natural, right? I mean, as a religious person, I recognize that all, the ultimate destiny of my life is beyond the political. But if you don't believe in something transcendent, you can make a god of the political. And that's what's happening in a, our secular society. We make a god of the political, which means that we ultimately are establishing a religion. It's called secular progressivism. Uh, whereas a Christian society recognizes that ultimate truths, ultimate, the ultimate destiny of every human person is above the affairs of men. And that lets us approach political life and our, our neighbors with a lot more generosity, a lot more tolerance, or capacity for compromise. Um, and, and that's very much needed in our time, a sense that, look, the political is not the ultimate. The ultimate is, is, uh, is the transcendent. Well, not only, I think, Doctor, the capacity for compromise, but the capacity for compassion for one another. And, of course, that compassion and, and the understanding of the challenges or the plights of another has to come because there's some sort of moral order. Unfortunately, we find ourselves in moral disorder that has so completely flipped all the rules on their head that suddenly now we see crime, for example, is, is not a moral issue. It's suddenly simply a, an economic issue, that poverty is a, a economic issue, not a moral issue. Or, uh, you know, we've, we've got everything absolutely backwards. And sadly, the end game, the end result is where we find ourselves today. We are in the, the clutches now of a postmodern society that uh, that sadly is redefining everything, and in some cases saying, well, there are no defini definitions, and so it's it's sort of up to uh, the, the the eye of the beholder, so to speak. And uh, as a result, it complete creates this this environment of just complete utter chaos, not only at the economic level but at the political level and every other. The book is a fascinating read, and I think one that ought to be embraced by every Christian, every person who holds dear the sense of having a ultimate authority of truth that believes that moral relativism uh, or situational ethics is, is highly disruptive to our society. We find ourselves in utter moral disorder because there are no mores. There's no foundation from which uh, we, we carry and comport ourselves. We've eliminated all the sense of of boundaries. Freedom just means doing whatever you want without any lack of accountability or responsibility whatsoever. And we've redefined the American dream to mean getting rich as opposed to the way our forefathers defined it. The book, I think, again, a critical read, particularly during this, this time that we're all, I think, 
taking a moment to reconsider where we stand, where we think, who we are as a people. The book, again, called Resurrecting the Idea of a Christian Society. It is written by Dr. R.R. Reno. You'll find it available bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order it online through Amazon.com. You can get it through uh, Dr. Reno's website at firstthings.com. That's firstthings.com. And the book, of course, is published by Regnery Press, a media partner of the same fine folks who own this radio station. Our thanks to Dr. R.R. Reno for uh, an insightful and thoughtful conversation. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.